If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 60. As I mentioned before, this evening we're going to be looking at a psalm, a psalm that reflects on God's providence over time. And that will be in connection with the new year. But this morning, we're in a prophetic passage, one that is connected with Advent, what we sometimes call Christmas, the coming of God among us, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60, written approximately six centuries before Jesus' birth, by a man who was a priest, the son of Amos, and it has as its major theme, the light of God. Let's hear it together, beginning at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What does this mean? May the Holy Spirit guide us in our understanding and our response to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your scripture, and we ask this morning that you would please nourish your people in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work within us true illumination, that you would give us spiritual, not only intellectual understanding, that you would incline our hearts to become truly reflective of these truths out into the world. We ask this for your glory, trusting that you receive us and you grant these things in Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, this passage of Isaiah is written approximately six centuries before the birth of Jesus. Think of all the empires that passed through the world leading up to the time of Christ. You have people like the Sumerians, the Persians, you have the Chinese, great empires. None of these nations and peoples thought of itself as darkened. They thought of themselves as illumined. They were the ones with understanding, and they tended to look upon their neighbors as the ones who were living in the dark. Depending on the measure that you use, in some sense it was in fact fair to say that some of these peoples were enlightened. For instance, if you take the standard of mathematics and engineering, the Egyptians would not find their equals for 3,000 years until after the Italian Renaissance. In terms of mathematics, they were enlightened among the peoples. Or if you take philosophy, take some of the 19th century so-called luminaries among the Germans, whose works are being read still. But scholars agree that the German philosophers of the 19th century are largely rehashing the Greeks from 300 BC. And scholars generally agree the Greeks were largely rehashing India's philosophers from 1300 BC. And so the Indians felt themselves to be enlightened people. And yet notice in verse 2, the Lord stands over all of these ancient peoples to say that they were in darkness. Even so it is today that 
every modern nation is going to assume itself to be an enlightened people. No one, this nation included, would think of itself as living in darkness, in the dark ages. And most individuals regard themselves, if they're honest, as probably more enlightened than many of their neighbors. Now, whether that's because you regard yourself as more socially progressive than your father and mother were, or your grandmother and grandfather were, or maybe for the opposite reason, you regard yourself as socially conservative and therefore more enlightened than that other progressive person. Everyone thinks they're enlightened. People don't tend to think of themselves as in darkness. But the Holy Spirit pushes back against that natural tendency in this passage and throughout the scripture. He stands over the world and he says that in some sense, apart from Jesus Christ, the world is in darkness. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, here in this chapter of scripture, God promises, light has begun to dawn over all the peoples of the world. Indeed, you can experience genuine light in Jesus Christ. I trust most of us, if not all of us, have experienced light in Christ. But then we're going to see that Isaiah 60 calls you then to arise and to shine. You don't have the option in the Lord of placing that light under a bushel. You are called to arise and to shine. And so these are some of the ideas that we're going to explore in this prophetic passage this morning. We're going to do so under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But first, look with me simply at verse 1. Darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. Here, the prophet is not describing something that would begin in the future to happen. It's not that the world had light and it would fall into darkness. He's talking about something that would continue. That the world was in darkness, and it would continue to be in darkness, until the events that are described in this passage. What sort of darkness is it that colors the world? Again, I've said that in terms of, say, mathematics or philosophy or medicine, different peoples have been more or less enlightened. But here, in some sense, the nations of the whole world were and are in darkness, apart from the true light. And this is our first main heading to identify the kind of darkness in Isaiah. The darkness of which the prophet is speaking is spiritual and moral in character. Spiritual and moral, because it has to do with grasping and embracing the true way of salvation. We'll come to see that in several passages. And one of the implications of the true way of salvation is that the Holy Spirit works in you a life of righteousness. Imperfect, but genuine, a life that stands out from the darkness of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, you notice how the term darkness is made equivalent to unbelief and evil. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the apostle says to Christians, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? The world will not, of course, acknowledge that it's lawless. They'll say, we keep all kinds of laws. We keep laws that aren't even in the law books. We have our own inward moral code. If it's not submission to the law of God as the law of God, God looks upon that and says, that is lawlessness because you're being a law unto yourself. He says, what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Or John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So you see, there's a moral component to this darkness. It's not simply the knowledge of the way of salvation, but it's to understand that the way of salvation brings deliverance also from the practice of sin. Natural wisdom, natural religion, according to Isaiah 60, did not cast light upon the path. And that's a remarkable claim because it stands against the beliefs of literally billions of people throughout history. The Bible is rugged in the assertions that it makes. All of the cumulative hours of billions of people seeking God through natural religion and philosophy did not result in anything but darkness. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul visits the city of Athens and he goes to a mountain that's covered in idols, including one to an unknown god. It said that there was a plague in the city and they offered to all the gods and the plague didn't end. And so the Athenians thought, well, we should make an idol that is nameless and we'll offer to that one in hopes that we've missed one. And so the plague was said to have stopped. Paul comes and he says, I have come to speak to you about the unknown God. But hear what he says to the philosophers as he stands on that mountain covered in idols. Acts 17. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place in order that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet in verse 30, Paul summarizes all of that in these words. They amounted to, quote, the times of ignorance, of darkness. God didn't misunderstand what would happen. The point was to make a demonstration. Those who choose to walk outside of the Lord and his path receive their just desert. If they won't walk with the God of light, they get darkness. And in that darkness, they cannot by nature find their way back to the light. It's possible to romanticize other religions if you're not familiar with them. To whatever extent you may study ancient religions, however, and existing religions, you will find what they have in common. That they produce self-righteousness because the system is not based on pure grace. The concept isn't there. Or they produce debauchery. Or they produce all kinds of evil forms of asceticism. You could this day go to India and see yogis who clinch their hand together. And why are they doing this? Maybe an arm in the air until it literally dies and the arm is stuck this way. And I, I will speak grotesquely because it's necessary that you understand the evil, what the apostles call doctrines of demons. People who clinch their fist until their fingernails grow through their hand. Why do they do that by the thousands? Because of a belief that true deliverance comes by losing all consciousness of this world. And so they try to do things that will prove that they have no connection to this life. Obliteration of the self. Or surrounding the Mediterranean world, archaeologists find again and again what's called tophets. These are basically graveyards of children. It was extremely common throughout the whole world until the influence of Christianity 
that peoples killed their children in order to gain the favor of the gods because the gods deserve a great sacrifice and what more than your own children. The world is darkened without true light. But you have to appreciate a point in Isaiah 60. It includes God's own covenant people as standing in the dark. When it says, your light shall come, Now, to be clear, they were not in absolute darkness, praise God. His covenant people throughout the Old Testament, they had a portion of light. They had the types and symbols of the Old Covenant. They had somewhat cryptic prophecies. They had enough to believe upon Christ in faith, the Christ who was to come. And yet, they were in a relative darkness, something of a twilight preceding the dawn. Even at that point, appreciate just that God has providentially placed you here and now. But they labored in this darkness, and even what light they had was greatly obscured by false teachers, by the legalism, for instance, of some of the Pharisees, is obscured by their own sinfulness, such that on the eve of Christ's birth, the Jews as a whole were described in Luke's gospel as, quote, Those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, waiting for the sunrise to visit us from on high. This is the circumstance that Isaiah is dealing with and which we must receive. God's statement standing over the world apart from the knowledge of God in Christ is darkness. It doesn't mean it's devoid of all kinds of beauty. The world can achieve a kind of moral excellence which Christians can learn from at times though we would not have to learn from it if we'd walk according to the scriptures. But there's this darkness standing over the nations, and that brings us then to the hope that is promised in Isaiah 60, in our second main heading. Here in this passage, God promises that dawn would break. He promises that dawn would break over the world. Isaiah is hearing this centuries before, and God's people, as they are about to enter into a period of exile, are going to have to hold on to this, as it seems like the lights really turn off. Their temple gets destroyed. All of the, or most of, the signs and seals, the sacraments for that time, are taken away. Here they must hold on to the promise. What does the promise look with me at verse 3? Your light has come And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Your light has come. Now, it's speaking in the present tense as though it's happened. Sometimes scholars will refer to this, theologians refer to this as the prophetic perfect tense. That is, it's talking about future things as though they're present in order to underscore the certainty. This will come to pass. And so you find that over and over again, the prophets, children especially understand that. When you read and it sounds like it's talking about now, often it's talking about later, but it's to give you a sense of assurance. And then what is meant by these words? Your light has come. Your light has come. It would be easy to mistake that as greater revelation, perhaps. Sometimes people talk about understanding or teaching in terms of light, new light. But here the... Jewish person familiar with the Old Testament would recognize this is personal because true light has a name, Yahweh, God. Hear what it says in Isaiah, or rather Psalm 27, one of the Psalms that we sang, 
the Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 18, verse 28, for you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. The prophets understood in light of this passage and many others that something was going to happen in the future where God himself would manifest his presence in a way that would illumine Israel in a much greater way than whatever they had known before that. They had received the law. They had received the temple. They had received the Levitical priesthood. All of those were light, and yet compared to it, their light had not come. The Lord, your personal, possessive, your light shall come. But now the hardest thing which God's people had to grapple with to understand this prophecy and how it would be fulfilled is how it's connected to another set of prophecies. And I'll tell you plainly, if there's any point in this sermon where there is some danger of losing you in the weeds, it is at this point. Don't let me lose you. Hold in your mind what we've been seeing. Isaiah 60 prophesies that light is going to dawn beginning at Israel and spreading to the world. Light is going to dawn. It's going to be God himself in some way manifesting his presence. But there are a number of other passages throughout the Old Testament that spoke of the dawn being synchronized, happening at the same time as something else. That is, the prophets spoke of a mysterious figure, a human being, who is sometimes called the Star of Jacob, sometimes called the Morning Star. Appreciate the imagery. This is a person, a human being, that those prophets are talking about. When God made his covenant promises to Abraham, he leads Abraham out of the tent and tells him to look upon the heavens, and he says, your descendants will be as the stars in the sky. Not just numerically, but in terms of being lights in the darkness, of having an abiding place with God. But one of those descendants would shine brighter than the others. And one of those descendants would appear just before the dawn would come. Numbers chapter 24, I don't ask that you turn there. It's very brief, but listen carefully. Numbers 24, verse 17, written approximately, or prophesied approximately, a thousand years before Jesus' birth. The prophet Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so this is a descendant of Abraham from the line of Jacob, who's going to be a king, hence the scepter. He shines brighter than the others. One last part, don't drop this, because it's going to help you understand certain prophecies in Scripture. Ancient people did not have the understanding that modern people have concerning the difference between planets and stars, whether they're on fire or not on fire, or their relative distance. They just know it as they see it. And ancient people went out just as you could do, and for much of the year, if you get up about an hour before the sunrise, you'll see one object in the sky brighter than all the others. And it goes along the exact same track as the sun. And so it comes up, and then the sun comes up following in the exact same track. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. Venus. Venus catches the early morning light, and it's by far the brightest object in the sky. 
And so ancient peoples referred to that as the morning star or the herald of the morning. The Greeks called it phosphorus, bringer of the light. God built the heavens in such a way that he has his metaphors already available. Same with creation. God doesn't go like some pastor or teacher does and find analogies. God created the analogies to suit the lesson. And so it is that God prophesies that there would be one of the descendants of Abraham who immediately precedes God himself coming with light. What was clear is what the effect would be, that the light would begin at Israel and spread to the world. Look with me at verse 2, Isaiah 60. Speaking to Israel, the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Just as if the sun rises over there, and then it seems to spread its light elsewhere, it begins at Israel and spreads to the world. And so this is the promise that was given in Isaiah 60, that dawn would break. What we need to come back to appreciate the beauty of this morning is how it is brought to fulfillment. I realize this is not a surprise for the great majority of us. But the danger is that we become dull to it. It doesn't cease to be bright. We form cataracts over our faith. And we need the Holy Spirit to bring us back to bask in the beauty of this. This brings us to our third, our final heading, to behold how light has broken in Christ. In fact, I want to invite you to turn to a passage in Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke. We'll look at several passages in the Gospels. These are the first four books of the New Testament that describe Jesus' earthly ministry. This is one of the major themes in the nativity, of course, right? Connecting these Old Testament passages about the coming of the light and that star of Jacob together with the birth of Christ. Of course, you have in the first place the star over Bethlehem, a pretty clear indication by God of the arrival of that special descendant of Abraham, coming to rest over the very place where Jesus is born. But then, verse 76 of Luke 1, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, whose whole ministry would be to herald Jesus. He says concerning John, Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wait, this is confusing. On the one hand, here John is heralding the man, Jesus, and yet he's the prophet of the Most High and the light which has come. Then look at Matthew's interpretation of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. See how Matthew understands Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4. There, beginning at verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Christ goes outside the traditional borders of the promised land. When it says dwelling in the region of death, quite literally, if you stood outside the covenant land, it's tantamount to standing outside of the visible church. And Christ is bringing the light of the gospel to people who formerly were outside and beyond. He is that figure spoken of here, but then nowhere is it more clear than John chapter 1. Turn with me there, the fourth gospel. John chapter 1, John the Apostle's testimony concerning the identity of the man Jesus Christ. Beginning at verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. You have to hear that as a Jew. Thy Word is a lamp to my feet. The inscripturated Word is the representation in text, in grammar, in logic of the eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the dawn of of salvation as scripture presents it. Up to that point, there had been glimmers of light telling us what was to come and how people were being saved by faith up to that point. But now light is spilling out as you see and you understand the way of salvation is that God of God, light of light, has pierced in among us, wearing our very nature, teaching us the way of salvation himself. And he is that salvation. Christ saved us not simply by illuminating the moral path. That would have only made us more guilty. But he himself suffered darkness on the cross. Not merely physically what was in the world to give us a sense of what was going on spiritually. But spiritually to be cast away from the presence, the favor of God. That his true human soul should experience the hellish torment of alienation from God. And he did that willingly, joyfully, happily to bring to himself all who would look to him to receive light. In this sense, faith is very much like the eye. It simply receives the light. You don't have to strain to see the light. 
It comes right in if it's true faith. Faith is receiving God's promise, taking him up on it. Hear what Jesus says. John 8, verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or in Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the one who came and brought the dawn. If you look to me, if you trust me, then you are illumined. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God said, Light shall shine out of the darkness. And this is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. So what do we do with this? In the first place, I exhort you, receive the Spirit's testimony concerning those who have not looked upon Christ in faith. Whatever light the world has, it is darkened spiritually. And whatever light you may possess, If you have not come to know God through faith in his grace alone, you stand in the dark. The promise of the gospel is not one of doing your best and God grading on a curve. It is one of grace. John 1 verse 14, or rather John 12 verse 46 says, Jesus speaking, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness have you received his light and what evidence is there of that scriptures warn us if anyone continues to walk in darkness they are liars they have not come into the light but even that comes by the work of the holy spirit and faith must go back upon him but on the other hand if you sit here this morning and you do believe you have come to the light the first place praise the lord this was not by your will. Even as we saw in John, he says, not according to the will of the flesh, but the gift of the Lord who grants light, eyes to see. Second, bask in the assurance that is given to you. John verse one fourteen says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. It's not that the law didn't have a gracious purpose, but it could not give you a right to grace. It could only show you your need of it. Grace and truth have come through Christ, and so it's a light that shines upon you, and one that you are to bask in daily. I know it is so easy, I know it by experience, so easy to become fixated on the darkness that remains even in the believer. And to let that eclipse the light that is given to you in Jesus Christ, which is assured to us. But the scripture cannot be broken, which says he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. How then are you going to live when you walk out of these doors this morning? Will this have any consequence upon your life? 
Is it something that you come into here to be reminded lights are on for the people of God? And then to go out and to forget about it. Look with me at verse 1, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Arise. That means no longer are we to have a a stature, a posture of cowering, of abasement. Elsewhere, the Lord says to his people, you shall sit in the dust and ashes as he sends them into exile. Now he says to you, arise, assume a posture of confidence, of joy, of service, of attentiveness to your Lord. Arise, know that you are accepted in the beloved. Have the dignity that belongs to you in Jesus Christ, which is world, which all your accomplishments, which all of your solidarity with whatever tradition or people that you seem to have something in common with, none of those can give you the dignity that belongs to those who know they've been called to everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And then shine. Be beacons of this grace and of the holiness that flows from it. Remember I said at the beginning, Darkness, as it's described in Scripture, is not simply ignorance of the way to be justified before God. It is also moral depravity. And the Lord is calling you to shine. That if anyone in this world should have a character that is resplendent with a love for what is righteous, just, compassionate, true, it is you, the Christian. We should never, ever have to look to the world for our moral exemplars. This church as a congregation seated within this city, on this block, we are called, and I fall short of it all the time, we have to encourage one another, stoke the fire, shine the light. If there's anyone within a mile radius of this church who should be beacons of holiness, incandescent with integrity, it is us. Arise, shine, put away the works of darkness. And so receive it not from me, but from the Holy Spirit and his word. If there is any area of your life to which you are clinging to the dark, let the fire lick your hand that you let go and you realize, I am no longer called to that. I am transferred out of that domain into the kingdom of light. Romans 13, verse 12, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deed of darkness and put on the armor of light. What will be the result for the congregation that is more and more faithful to this? Again, it's entirely by grace, but God uses means. Look at me at Isaiah 60, verse 2 and 3, and then we'll close in prayer. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of of your rising. The apostles interpreted this rightly, that the Lord would use the faithfulness of his church, declaring the gospel, manifesting the Holy Spirit, to draw representatives from every tribe and tongue. And here in this city, we have every tribe and tongue. We are sent out for that purpose. The elders have not been hiding the fact that it is our longing at some point we would participate in church planting. 
And in the present, we are praying for those churches which already are in this valley. But if we desire to have any part in there being additional lampstands throughout this valley, keep in focus the reason. It is not so that we have a shorter drive. It is not to ease our commute. Understandable? Understandable? The primary reason is because Christ is worthy of light everywhere. He's worthy of greater contrast. He's worthy of people being willing to gather in all parts and to bring the light to others. Acts 26, 18 says the apostles were sent to open the eyes of the nations so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Don't you want a part in seeing people come to faith? And don't we want to see a multitude drawn to faith? I don't know what God's will is, neither do you, in respect to the hidden things, but we should not be willing to believe that darkness has so settled upon this valley that there cannot be greater light. It is not written in Isaiah that in 2022, that is going to be the beginning of the darkest point in Phoenix's history. Don't act like it. Act like this is the year that things are growing and growing. How is he going to do it? Not someone else. It will be you. Arise and shine for your light has come. Let's ask him. This is a holy thing. We have no power in ourselves. Let's ask him to do that now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the highest possible calling to be bearers of your image, and you are light of light. We thank you that you have not called us to do this in our own nature. We are coal to the bottom. But by your Holy Spirit, you can transform and refine us. You can make of your people something like a diamond. You can make us reflective of your light. We pray that you would please cause us in every facet to glow with gratitude for having come among us in Christ for having redeemed us from the darkness. And we pray that you would please use our very lives as miracles of transformation for those whom you are drawing to faith. We pray this blessing upon our church and upon all the churches that proclaim your true gospel in this valley. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.